Hey, well, good morning. It's great to see you here today at Hope and Anchor Church. I'm excited to uh, get back into God's Word because there we find uh, the words of life. We get to find Jesus talking to people uh, in a historical place and time, but also finding that He's also speaking to us. I mean, what a privilege that we get to come together and turn our attention to what God would say to us uh, in Jesus. And so today we are continuing our Law and Prophets teaching series where we've been spending time with Jesus uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Basically, Jesus' iconic, classic teachings, what we find in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And this is week number 18. And uh, today's message is called Deception Pass, Deception Pass. As you may have discovered in your many years upon this earth, uh, life is not always as it seems. Life is not always as it seems. Um, uh, and that can be true in so many aspects. Things are not always as they seem, be it in life, be it in love, or even things like geography. Geography. In the uh, Pacific Northwest, has anyone been to the Pacific Northwest like the Puget Sound? Beautiful, beautiful area. But in the Pacific Northwest, nestled among the many islands of the Puget Sound, there is a small passageway. There's a small passageway between Whidbey Island and Fidalgo Island. Um, I've got a map actually to show you of what I'm talking about here. Uh, anyone else like a map lover? Uh, this is a, a, an inset or a, a zoomed in view of the Puget Sound and we see on the southern part or the bottom part of the screen uh, the northern part of Whidbey Island and then to the north there is Fidalgo Island and in between you see a small bridge and a small island in the, in the way there. This uh, notoriously treacherous strait, uh, which was mapped by Joseph Whidbey in 1792, it was later named Deception Pass. Deception Pass by George Vancouver. Why do you think this narrow waterway is so deceptive? Why do you think it gained the name, it earned the name Deception Pass? Why is this narrow pass between the islands so deceptive? Go ahead and uh, show that next image. This is an aerial view of Deception Pass between Whidbey Island and Fidalgo Island. Why do you think it's so deceptive? Any mariners here? Yeah. Well, I'm glad you asked because I'm about to tell you why this waterway is so deceptive. First, it was historically difficult for sailors to find. It was difficult to locate. If you go back to that map view, uh, you see, this is, uh, if you've seen the whole picture of the Puget Sound, there's many, many islands. And, to, and Fidalgo Island and Whidbey Island are pretty long and, and, and vast. And so to locate this without the, uh, without the benefit of GPS and uh, geolocation, you have to go by just landmarks. And this looks like a lot of inlets uh, that are spread throughout the Puget Sound. So first, Deception Pass was, was difficult for sailors to find. But secondly, and probably more importantly, Deception Pass is, is just ripping with tidal flows. The tidal flows in Deception Pass are unexpectedly powerful and unexpectedly dangerous because a massive amount of water, given the tidal flows, have to, they can't pass through the islands, so they're funneled down to this very narrow inlet. And thus, the tidal flows between the islands is unexpectedly powerful and dangerous. So, once you found the passage, 
you would notice and you would think that Deception Pass looks simple to get through. It looks, it's plenty wide for ships to get through. Uh, and this promises to save much time and much effort in transiting the Skagit Bay, uh, going through to the Strait of Juan de Fuca. If you've ever sailed, anytime you can find a way through instead of around, that's a good thing. Saves a ton of time, especially if you're going by wind power. So if you could pass through this simple, wide passageway, you would save so much time. But as sailors have discovered over and over again, many to their own peril, the waters between Whidbey Island and Fidalgo Island, they are filled with whirlpools, with eddies, and with these extremely strong tidal currents. At the height of the tidal flow, at the tidal ebb and flow, the current uh, can be moving through Deception Pass at up to 8 nautical miles an hour, or 8 knots, which is about 10 miles per hour. And some of you are like, I can run faster than that. You know, 10 miles an hour, that's not super fast. Well, it is if you're in a little sailboat. If you're trying to make your way by wind power, or by rowing, or by a, <laughs> a small engine, 10 miles an hour of current is a lot to overcome. It's enough to make passage in a small craft or a sailboat not only dangerous, but in, for many, all but impossible. Very, very frustrating. But they went with deception pass instead of frustrating pass. Because <laughs> it's deceiving. It's deceiving and dangerous. Many have tried and many have failed to pass through deception pass. Many have been forced to retreat. Many have been forced to just wait for the tide to change. And many have just been forced to sail all the way around. To sail the long way around either Whidbey Island or Fidalgo Island. Here's the key truth then for the sailors and for us. And I want you to hold on to this. This is kind of a key statement. Unless you are willing to do it the right way, at the right time, you will not make it safely through Deception Pass. Unless you are willing to do it in the right way, at the right time, you will not make it safely through Deception Pass. In life, as in sailing, <laughs> as in Deception Pass, things are not always as they seem. The way before us is sometimes far more challenging and far more difficult than we first expect, and we end up getting far more than we bargained for. I imagine there's been sailors that have sailed into uh, Deception Pass and in the middle of they're like, oh, oh no, I've bitten off more than I can chew. I've gotten way more than I bargained for. I need to turn around and go back. I wasn't ready for this. I didn't, I didn't expect all of this. The way before us is sometimes far more challenging and difficult. Sometimes we get far more than we bargained for. As I mentioned earlier, we're once again today with Jesus on that hillside in Matthew as he's teaching his Sermon on the Mount. And today, we need to listen closely. Why? Because Jesus is giving us a warning. He's, he's essentially giving us a warning here like, hey, heads up, pay attention here. The way is narrow. You say you want to follow me, but understand this. The way is narrow, and few, in the end, actually find it. The way is narrow and few find it. Now, contextually, I don't think Jesus had Deception Pass in mind. I'm not sure if he'd ever been physically during his life in ministry to the Pacific Northwest. But I think he definitely had the kingdom of God in mind. He is clearly speaking of the kingdom of God. 
Entering into the way of Christ, but more than that, entering into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was front and center in his thoughts that day, and he was eager to illustrate exactly what it takes to enter in, to, to tread that path that truly leads to life. Jesus tells us this. He says, finding and entering into the life with God is harder than we think. The door is narrower, and the path is more difficult, and truth be told, only a few find it. Only a few find it. I'd invite you to join me today in Matthew chapter 7. This is just a short two verses we're going to look at from the Sermon on the Mount as we get started. But Matthew chapter 7, verses 7, uh, 13 and 14, Jesus says, You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad. Anyone else singing it when you read it? Uh, okay. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for many who choose that for the many who choose that way. But the gate to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. I'll read it again. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. In the religious life, it would seem that there is much possible deception. There are many ways to be deceived in the pursuit of the religious life or the life with God. Many come to the salvation message of Jesus. To the, they hear the gospel and they want to respond. They come, they're attracted by the idea of salvation. They want to be saved, set free, rescued by God. Uh, yet they are standing at the entrance of the kingdom and they are on the very threshold of this redeemed life with God. But when it comes to actually entering in, when it comes to actually submitting to the way of Jesus, many turn away. Many assess the cost of what it would require of them and they say, I don't think I'm ready to pay that much. So they, when it comes to submitting to the way of Jesus, many turn away, many change course, and they choose instead the path of comfort and of self-interest. They want to serve themselves. When it comes down to who will be Lord of their life, they tacitly decide, it will be me. It will be me, not Jesus. Thus, the true way into the kingdom is narrow, and few find it. But the path of comfort, the path of comfort, Jesus says, the way of self-serving religion, it ultimately leads where? It leads to destruction. It is broad, it is smooth, and many, actually most, choose it. Matthew Henry, who was a Welsh pastor, from, a pastor from Wales, that's what that means. He was a Welsh pastor from the 1600s. He lays this out for us so well, and I wish I could handle a Welsh accent, but I can't. I could try, right? Here we go. The gate is straight. <laughs> Imagine this, a Welsh pastor from the 1600s saying this. The gate is straight. Conversion and regeneration are the gate by which we enter into this way, in which we begin a life of faith and serious godliness. Out of a state of sin into a state of grace, we must pass by the new birth. This is a straight gate, hard to find and hard to get through, like a passage between two rocks. 
There must be a new heart and a new spirit, and old things must pass away. The bent of the soul must be changed, corrupt habits and customs broken off. What we have been doing all our days must be undone again. We must swim against the stream. Much opposition must be struggled with and broken through from without and from within. It is easier to set a man against all the world than against himself. And yet, this must be in conversion. It is a straight gate, for we must stoop or we cannot go in at all. We must become as little children. High thoughts must be brought down. Nay, we must strip, must deny ourselves, put off the world, put off the old man. We must be willing to forsake all our interest in Christ. All for our interest in Christ. The gate is straight to all, but to some straighter than others. As to the rich, to some that have been long prejudiced against religion, the gate is straight. Blessed be God, it is not shut up. For locked, nor is it locked against us, nor kept with a flaming sword, as it will be shortly. Holy moly! Matthew Henry I wish I could, I might do this actually, I might post this, this quote from him. He nails it. The gate is straight, but blessed be God, it is not shut up, nor is it locked against us, nor kept with a flaming sword, as it will be shortly. There's an urgency here. It's like, yes, the cost is great, but the way is open to you for now. So we must hear what Jesus says, and we must respond rightly and count the cost. How many of us have really done that, though? How many of us have really counted the cost when it comes to following after Jesus? How many of us have heard Jesus' word? We have heard his invitation. We have heard what it will cost us to follow him, and we've said, Okay, that I will do. Whatever it costs, I'm in. My whole life belongs to you. How many of us have really counted the cost when it comes to Jesus? How many of us are willing to count the cost even now? As Matthew Henry points out, it's a daily discipline. It's like, he says, the bent of the soul must be changed, corrupt habits and customs broke off. What we have been doing all of our days must be undone again, <laughs> today. Every day we go to battle with ourselves. How many of us are willing to count that cost even now? How many of us are willing to do what Christ requires for us to pass through this straight gate. I don't know what, what hit you in that whole extended quote from him, but here's the part that really hit me between the eyes. Matthew Henry says, To enter Christ's kingdom, the bent of the soul must be changed. Corrupt habits and customs broke off, what we have been doing all our days must be undone again. We must swim against the stream. Much opposition must be struggled with and broken through from without and from within. It is easier to set a man against all the world than against himself. And yet, this must be in conversion. Have you felt that? Have you confronted that? If not, I wonder if we really submitted to and entered into that calling of Christ, that invitation of Christ to enter into His kingdom. Because this sounds pretty drastic. This sounds pretty all-encompassing. Yet, how often in our churches, how often in our sharing of the gospel, are we really telling the truth? How often are we laying this in front of our people 
and laying out the truth about the cost of following Jesus, this startling call that he lays out that says, Come to me, come and die. Come and die. Take up your cross. Follow me. Count it all loss for my sake. Do we hear the call to follow Jesus as a call to come and die? Man, that's steep. That's hard. In my experience, many will come gladly to be saved from sin and hell. No one wants to sizzle like a piece of sausage. I mean, I got saved less so for the love of Jesus and more so for the fear of hell. I mean, that was, that was in heavy rotation in my upbringing in the church. I was fearful of hell. In fact, I've told you this story before. I got saved on a Sunday that our church did a musical cantata about hell. I mean, like songs, dancing, kind of rhythmic dancing, and people being dragged across the stage and thrown into a big fiery furnace thing. And then it's easy. I'm low-hanging fruit. The pastor stands up at the end and is like, who wants to be saved? Who doesn't want to go in that thing? He's like, man, 12-year-old me is like, <laughs> I choose non-smoking, you know? Uh, yeah, I mean, anyone else just by a show of hands, you feel like in an honest assessment, you got saved more out of a fear of hell than you did out of a love for Jesus. A willingness to count the cost and follow Him and surrender your life to Him. I think a lot of us would say, oh, maybe it's a mix of both. Many will come. Many will hear the invitation and they'll gladly come in order to be saved from hell. To be saved from eternal death and separation from God. But these same people will turn away when the way gets too steep. When, the, when life becomes too difficult or obedience to Christ becomes too costly, they turn away. And Jesus addresses this. He recognizes this and he addresses this truth in many places. But one place in Luke's gospel, he reiterates that we must all, if we are to follow him, we must all count the cost before we enter into being a disciple. Jesus would rather us stand back at first and say, okay, wait. What's going on here? What does this mean? What will this cost me? In a sense, he's saying, hey, count the cost or don't come at all. Look at Luke 14, uh, 25 through 33. Luke uh, thir uh, 14, 25 through 33. This is called a cost of, the cost of being a disciple. A large crowd was following Jesus, and he turned around and said to them, notice this, a large crowd was following Jesus. He turned around and said to them, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. Your father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life. Otherwise, you cannot be my disciple. And if you don't carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus was not on board with the church growth movement. I mean, this is not how you go about doing it, turning around when there's a large crowd following you and saying, hey, wait, check yourself before you wreck yourself. You've got to hate everybody in comparison to your love for me. But don't, and Jesus in verse 28 says, But don't begin until you count the cost, for who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there is enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might, complete, you might complete only the foundation before running out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. They would say, ha, There's the person who started that building and couldn't afford to finish it. Or what king would go to war without with another king without first sitting down with his counselors to discuss whether his army of 10,000 could defeat the 20,000 soldiers marching against him. 
And if he can't, he will send a delegation to discuss terms of peace while the enemy is still far away. So you cannot become my disciples without giving up everything you own. I mean, imagine it. Jesus turns this large, interested crowd, easy to get into church, right? And he lays this out in front of them and says, hey, unless you're willing to give up everything, everything to follow me, don't do it. Don't do it. Jesus makes it clear. Becoming a Christ follower, becoming a Christian, it isn't about just reading your Bible. It isn't about just going to church. It is a radical reorientation, reprioritization of your whole entire life. Wow. You see, getting saved, being reconciled to God, it demands from us an all-encompassing, ongoing surrender of yourself to Jesus as King. That Jesus is established and enthroned as King of, over your life, over every single aspect of your life. Now get this, Jesus did not come to be a chaplain for your life and your pursuits. I think sometimes we imagine this, maybe subconsciously, but we imagine that Jesus wants to come and be buddy Jesus, a chaplain for your otherwise uh, enjoyable pursuits in life. To come alongside you, you know, hovering like a cherub, like, you got this, you're doing great, you know, you do you. You know, we think that Jesus wants to be this, but he didn't come to be a chaplain to our life and our pursuits. If you read the Gospels in the Bible and that's what you come away with, I'm sorry, friend, you've read it wrong. You've read it wrong. It's like we all sit down and read the same Bible, yet some of us come away with what's like a bad lip reading. Have you ever seen those YouTube videos where it's like they, they, they show clips from movies, but they record over it what their mouths look like they're saying, and it's a bad lip reading that makes no sense. It's completely different than the dialogue in the movie, but it's hilarious. But I'm afraid this isn't hilarious. We hear what Jesus says, and we come away with a bad lip reading of the gospel truth. If you read the Gospels and you come away with the understanding, the narrow understanding that Jesus was simply a political activist. Oh, oh Jesus, I've read his words. He's simply a, a moral teacher. He's a great moral teacher. Or Jesus, he came to be a social justice warrior. I'm afraid you've wildly missed the point. Did Jesus care about our engagement with politics? Absolutely. Did, does Jesus uh, come and teach us uh, a, a robust morality? Does he cast a, a robust moral vision for the way we ought to live in the world? Absolutely. Does Jesus care about social justice? Yes. It is at the heart of the gospel he came and announced as he started his ministry. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me to bring freedom to the captives, sight to the blind. I mean, if you come away thinking that Jesus didn't care about that, you've also misread. However, to only see these things is to miss the bigger panorama of what Jesus came proclaiming. He is king. If you've read the gospel accounts, it becomes clear. Jesus came to be Lord. To be in charge, to be, uh, have authority. He came to be Lord. There can be no half-hearted followers of Jesus. There can be no part-time disciples. There can be no fair-weather believers. There will be no spiritual snowbirds. Do you know what a snowbird is? It's people that travel seasonally to better climates because it gets too hot or too cold. So people from up north go down south during the winter, and then from the south they go up north during the summer. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not trying to convict people here. <laughs> I saw us. <that>. Stay. <laughs> but, 
But you understand what I'm saying? There's no halfway commitments with Jesus. He won't allow that. There's, there's none of this half-heartedness, this fair-weatherness. Well, you may be sitting there saying, why, why this is shocking. This is shocking. This is uncomfortable. I don't come to church to be made uncomfortable. I want to come to church and be soothed. I want you to say nice things about what God thinks about me and my lifestyle choices. I want you to be, I want to leave here happy and encouraged. Well, I'm sorry, Jesus won't let us get away with that all the time. And this is one of those Sundays where he's poking us right in the sternum saying, hey, wake up. Wake up. I will be Lord of all or I'll be Lord not at all in your life. There's no half measure here. Jesus meant what he had to say that day on the hillside of Matthew. To be, he meant it to be shocking. So, if to some degree it's shocking to us here today, good. We're being faithful to the text. Jesus meant to shock us here. Consider this. Consider who to whom Jesus is talking in Matthew chapter 7. Consider to whom Jesus is talking to in Luke chapter 13 and 14, where we kind of looked at uh, also. These are Jewish people. These are Jewish people. Who are the Jewish people? They are the people of Moses. These are the people most familiar with the law of God, the law given to Moses on Sinai. It is easy to think when you hear, when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, that uh, it's easy to think that it was just wishy-washy, lukewarm people that were just hanging around for a free lunch and Bible stories. But these weren't just bored people looking for. These weren't just bored people who were looking for uh, some encouraging information about God. These weren't people that had gathered around Jesus just for some solid advice for living your best life now. <laughs> That's not what they were there for. These were men and women that, to various degrees, were steeped in Torah. They were steeped in the law of Moses. They had been uh, raised hearing the story of the Exodus. They had been raised practicing in their communities and in their families the, the appointed feasts and festivals. They were familiar, deeply familiar, with what it meant to be living as God's chosen people in the world. That was central to their identity. And as a result, most of them just assumed by default then that they were on the right path. They were on the right path and following after God. They were in. They were the in crowd. They got it. They had received it. And they were doing okay. But the University Press New Testament commentary, it explains the situation this way. Most Jewish people in Jesus' days were religious. Respecting God and keeping His commandments, they were, that was the most important part of their culture. These would be the many people of whom Jesus' hearers would think of when they heard him. Uh, yet Jesus declared that most people were lost. Jesus intends his words to jar us from complacency, to consider the genuineness of our commitment to him. One wonders how many members in our churches today assume that they are saved when in fact they treat Jesus' teachings light, lightly. They are people who give no thought to their temper, to their mental chastity, their integrity, and so forth during the week, and then pretend to be religious or even spiritually gifted in church. Do we have the courage to communicate Jesus' message as clearly as he meant it to be conveyed, to warn ourselves and others that it is possible for people to assume that they are saved and yet be damned? 
Some texts in the Bible provide assurance and suffer. Some texts in the Bible provide assurance to suffering Christians that the kingdom is theirs. But this, challenge, this text challenges cultural Christians, those following only Christian tradition rather than Christ himself, challenging them to realize that they need conversion. They need to be changed. They need to be transformed by the gospel, by an encounter with Jesus. So here's my takeaway from this. Just as Jesus turned to the crowd in Matthew chapter 7, and just as he turns to them in Luke chapter 14 and knocks their socks off, even though they weren't wearing socks or wearing sandals, but anyway, you get the point. Just as he turns to them and knocks their socks off with his teachings that day, perhaps he wants to do the same with us here today. What if Jesus intends that same effect here among us? What if Jesus is turning to us right now and he is saying things that stop us in our tracks? Maybe he's checking our motivations. Maybe he's, swelling, he's, he's waving smelling salts under our religious noses. Surely Jesus notices the large crowds that presume to follow him even today here in the American church. I imagine Jesus sees something going on in the American church landscape that's very familiar to what he saw on that hillside in Matthew. And surely, Jesus is just as interested in making sure that we know what we are getting ourselves into, making sure that we know what lies ahead if we are to become his true disciples. Do not be deceived, he says. Do not be deceived. The, way, the door is narrow, the way is difficult, and few truly find it. Why? Because it demands your soul, your life, and your all. The way of following Jesus, it requires, it demands your soul, your life, and your all. But there's a promise. His way leads to everlasting, true, real life. Following him leads into the very kingdom of God. Jesus says also, do not be deceived. The way leading to destruction and death, it's broad. It's broad. It's the way of the crowd. It's the way of social approval, of easy acceptance, of casual affiliations, of moral compromise, and of cultural affirmation. So hear Jesus say to us today, wake up up. Wake up, be aware, pay attention, and get serious. Count the cost. May we hear Jesus' words clearly today. May we rightly heed his warning, and may we find our way faithfully through deception pass. And may we find true, everlasting life in him. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks that Jesus cares enough to startle us, to shock us, to remove any illusion that we might carry with us in our practice of the faith. God, may we hear the full scope of what Jesus comes to teach us. May we hear fully and, and without reservation all that Jesus would say about what it means to follow after Him, about the cost, about the, about the treasure, about the joy about the challenge, all the stuff that comes with saying yes to Him. God, may we find that, that narrow gate. May we travel that narrow path. May we be found faithful. 
as ones who are daily going into battle with ourselves. People who are daily counting the cost and, and, and laying it before Jesus and say, Jesus, you're not just my Savior, but you're my Lord and my King. All of who I am, all that I have, all that I am able to do, it belongs to you. You are in authority over every aspect of my life and of who I am. I pray that we would be faithful in counting the cost as best as we are able, counting the cost today and tomorrow doing the same. God, Jesus knows that we are objects in motion. We are growing, we're learning, we don't have perfect knowledge. And so sometimes we come to faith in Jesus and we only understand a little bit. And that's fine. It isn't up to us to be saved. It's only because of the, the finished work of Jesus Christ through His atoning life, death, and resurrection that we can be saved at all. And Your Word tells us that we are to come as children, trusting, believing, hoping. And God, You'll take it from there. But ours is to daily reassess, daily evaluate our motives, daily call into question that which we're truly seeking. That we'd be daily counting the cost and continuing, choosing to continue following after you as we grow and as we become real disciples. So God, I don't know where this message hits each person here today, but I understand that a lot of us came for some kind of squirrely reasons into the faith. Some of us were just afraid of hell. Some of us were given kind of a candy-coated gospel that just made um, it seem too good to be true with no cost. But God, today we understand that the call of Christ is a call to come and die. A call to come and die so that we might truly live in Him. And so God, I pray that each of us in our own way would be receptive to the Holy Spirit and that we would uh, just sit honestly before You and say, come Lord, speak to me. Help me see. Give me eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand all that Jesus wants me to hear and see and understand. Lord, grow us. Help us become mature resilient disciples who are on our way further up and further into the kingdom. I pray for my friends here that have never followed Jesus. I pray that they would hear the, the, the wonderful invitation into life to follow Jesus, to turn from your sin and to turn to Him, to follow after and to become fully human in Him. To step into our role as image bearers declaring, demonstrating, witnessing something in the world of God's goodness expressed to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that they'd hear that invitation today and turn and follow Jesus. Lord, be with us today as we sit in your presence. We make this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we're going to worship a bit more, and this is a chance to do just that. Sit with the Lord. Say, search me and know me. God, question my motives. Help me see clearly where I've been fair weather, where I've been a part-time disciple, where I've been trying to just seek my own ends, my own desires, and just hoping that you would just baptize them and bless them and just be all for me. Call us out. I pray that God would call us out today through the work of His Holy Spirit. If you'd like to pray with somebody or talk with somebody, I'll be at the back. But the thing is, make the most of this opportunity.